Oh man, I forgot to put music on the beginning. Okay, here's a new intro with music for the beginning. I'm Scott, and this is the new intro I just recorded for this thing, so it would have some music on the beginning of it. And now stay tuned for the rest of what I recorded. Hey, y'all. How's it going? I'm Scott. So, uh, geez, I don't know. It looks like all my interviews fell through and not going to be any interviews today, so better catch up on some of these questions and answers for y'all. Got a few here. First of all, let me just say I'm recording this. I hope toward the end of this ridiculous hearing in Congress uh, with Comey and Rogers from the FBI and the NSA there. The whole thing is ridiculous. I mean, if you really thought that Barack Obama ordered a tap of Donald Trump before or after the election, then, well, you're just a fool and you don't know which way is up. The uh, right-wing caricature of Barack Obama would do something like that, but the real Barack Obama wouldn't do something like that. He made it very clear, and it was obviously not subterfuge. He really meant that, hey, you know, Trump, he doesn't like Trump. He sure thinks you should vote Hillary and whatever, but he never said, hey, if this guy wins, I'm going to stay in office, or we should get the Electoral College to cancel the results, or any of that stuff. He made it very clear that he would respect the results of the election uh, no matter what, and he wasn't messing with that. All this stuff about trying to mess with the Electoral College, I never saw any reason to believe that Obama had anything to do with that stuff. It didn't go anywhere. He knew better than that. You know, What's he going to do, try and stay in office? Come on. So anyway, um, the thing is, uh, so, sorry, the point being that, so the FBI debunked that. Nah, we weren't tapping the tower. We weren't tapping Trump. And Trump himself and all his people said they heard it from TV. He didn't hear from TV and then call the FBI and say, is that true? Hey, chief of staff, come in here. I saw a thing on the TV. Why don't you find out if it's true since, you know, I'm the president and you're the chief of staff. Surely we're in a position to find out. Instead, nah, let's just go with whatever TV says. Whatever Fox News says. Anyway, or half of what they say. Anyway, so that was the big news. And then the other big news is that they said, so are you going to provide any evidence whatsoever for all this stuff about Russia interfering in the election, never mind the Trump campaign cooperating with them? And the answer from Roger's opening statement on was, don't expect any evidence. Yes, we stand by our assertion. And our assertion is that we have made an assessment. And that assessment is with high confidence and sometimes medium confidence, depending on the question and the agency, that the Russians uh, hacked the DNC and the Podesta emails and gave them to WikiLeaks. Won't prove that. Uh, refuse to assert anything about uh, Sessions or Flynn actually, you know, doing anything wrong other than uh, not correctly, you know, recalling in exactly whatever context their questioner meant. And anyways, other than that, it's nothing. As uh, Michael Tracy, who's a writer on the internet, said that, well, so look, both sides have their agenda. The Democrats are here to try to bolster all their crazy Russia conspiracy crap. And the Republicans are trying to outlaw journalism and make this all about the crime of leaking and the crime of publishing leaks. And so the Espionage Act says that we could put a newspaper man in prison for publishing a story about classified documents, right? And Comey's like, well, you know, I mean, that law's never been enforced. And that's, you know, in America, the government employee who does the leaking is in trouble but once the leak gets into the hands of the newspaper reporter, pretty much all bets are off. If it's a you know so-called crisis, the White House will call and ask the papers to withhold their stories. But they have no power of prior restraint. The Supreme Court ruled that 
during Nixon and the Pentagon Papers. So, tough. And, and I guess they did leave open the possibility that a, a reporter or his editor could be prosecuted for publishing classified information, but it's never been done. As Or maybe it has been done once or twice way back when, but as Comey said, not in his lifetime. But I guess the Republicans would like to see that until the next time a Democrat's in power. Or actually, I guess they wouldn't care and take one for the team. State Uberalis, you know. Far before a party. Give them that in a twisted way. All right, anyway, all the rest of this stuff is just bunk. And I don't even believe that the Russians uh, were responsible for the Podesta or the DNC leaks to WikiLeaks. I guess they might have been, but I don't believe that. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, there's absolutely no way or something like that, but certainly no one has proven that. And I think there's strong reason to believe otherwise, including what Craig Murray said on this show about how he knows who did these leaks. And they were insiders, one from the DNC and one from the intelligence community who leaked on Podesta. Well, he didn't come right out and say that, but pretty damn close if you listen to the interview. So, I know how it is, man. I know how it is. I see, uh, boy, you guys have no idea the Twitter conversations I refrain from jumping into. But I see smart commentators, people who I know know better, who really do know better, saying, man, geez, now with the Sessions thing, it almost seems like maybe there really was a... You know, October surprise type of a secret deal with the Russians here, you know? No, it's still all a bunch of crap. It's just like against Saddam Hussein. Here's 15 lies in a row about him. Seems like enough of them must be true for you to believe that something must be done, right? Good enough? And yet none of them are right. It's all a bunch of crap. Same thing here. And seriously, and I do mean this. If the Russians actually did interfere in the election in order to hurt Hillary Clinton and and hurt her chances to win, then thank God for that. Screw it. Can you imagine if Hillary Clinton was the president? I mean, don't get me wrong. Every day I have to pinch myself that, geez, I can't believe that Donald Trump is the president of the United States. And it's already horrible and he's only just getting started. Uh, there's no telling the parade of uh, unfathomable atrocities that we're going to witness for the next eight years. But God, at least it's not Hillary Clinton. And that voice and the exact same policies only. Uh, just, yeah, I don't know. I really hate Hillary. Just I always have since, I don't know, 92 or 93 at the latest since she ordered Bill to order the Delta Force to murder all the Branch Davidians. I'm the kind of guy that holds a grudge about stuff sometimes. Anyway. So that's all I got to say about that. You know, I says to uh, someone that I know very well, I says, I hope you know that all this Russia stuff is BS, man. And this person that I know says to me, I don't know, you know, it just seems, I'm watching the news hour. It's all a bunch of crap, man. Come on. It's just like a rack. Yes, very sober, serious people are all in agreement, and it's a hoax. They are stupid. They are TV stars. What do they know about it? What evidence do they have? And, you know... Let's see, I blogged it. I don't know if I brought this up on here or not, but there's a Greenwald piece where he points out that Clapper and Morell, both, the former director of national intelligence and the former acting director of the CIA, both of whom hate Trump, Morell, who uh, went in, wrote in the New York Times last summer, talk about interfering in the election, and said that Trump is at least an unwitting puppet of Vladimir Putin. Uh, this is Hillary's guy. He had uh, went on Charlie Rose and caused all that controversy endorsing Hillary's foreign policy in Syria, which is overthrow Assad, fight Iran, and fight Russia. In other words, help Al-Qaeda. 
That's who this guy Morell is. And he went to some conference and said, you know, guys, I think we need to all kind of divest a little bit from putting our hopes up in the idea that there's ever going to be anything to come of this story. That Putin stole this election for Trump or that Trump worked with him on it. It just isn't true. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, influence. Oh, yeah, no, they must have leaked the thing. He wasn't contradicting the entire thing. I guess he was just contradicting the that Trump had anything to do with it or that there was anything more to be learned, right? All you're supposed to know is that they say that Russia must have done the hack and therefore must have been the ones who gave it to WikiLeaks. That's it. Their direct quote there on musta, because that's all they got. So, you know, it's confirmation bias is a hell of a drug, man. I see how it works. But if you just think for a minute, wait a minute, what if I didn't believe in this crap for a minute and I just looked at, well, what are they actually proven? Nothing. The Flynn phone call amounts to nothing. The Sessions meetings amount to nothing at all. The hack and the WikiLeaks probably had nothing to do with the Russians whatsoever. At least 50% chance, gotta admit. Certainly there's no proof that they did it. And, you know, the CrowdStrike information is all, look, they use Cyrillic letters. And, oh, look, they use the name of the former head of the secret police in the Soviet Union. Well, why would they do that? The most sophisticated hackers in the world, also the clumsiest. It's, uh, it's conspiracy quackery. And you know what it reminds me of? I saw this this morning. This is really a thing. You know, I used to think that this was only, you know, like a very proverbial kind of a thing, not a real thing. The most marginal thing of people who don't even have computers, right? Just idiots sitting around a campfire somewhere trespassing think this. But no, apparently this is new a thing, a new thing for truthers, that the earth is flat. <laughs> yeah. So this keeps going around. And the latest one, at least according to Twitter today, maybe I fell for a hoax or something, I don't think so, was that Shaquille O'Neal said that. And what's his proof? When he drives across America, looks flat out his window. And you know what? I bet if you asked him, I bet he's got a, quite a few more reasons. And whoever convinced him, I bet you they got a 50-point manifesto. Which just goes to show, really, whether it's the flat earth or whether it's Russia or whether it's anything pro or con state power that you want to believe, induction is a hell of a drug. You know, that's the thing. You believe whatever you want. You can build a case for whatever you want. Doesn't have to necessarily hold up to others. But Shaquille O'Neal put it. I mean, dude, go to Atlanta and then ask yourself, does it really make sense to you that China is beneath you? I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> Wouldn't they just fall off? If you were on the side of the earth, you would fall off of it. Don't be stupid. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. All right. And now speaking of crazy conspiracy stuff, Oklahoma City. I got to admit, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. My crazy conspiracy stuff on Oklahoma City is that a bunch of Nazis helped McVeigh do it. He was a Nazi, too. I'm talking about the bombing in 1995 that killed 186 people, supposedly revenge for the Waco massacre two years before. Um, you know, I think uh, McVeigh certainly is guilty and, uh, and probably was the ringleader of the plot. You know, I don't know. I had, uh, for, for many years, I had taken McVeigh's lawyer's statement about the Scotland Yard and the making of the bomb and how it was just impossible that it had been made at Geary State Lake and trans transported all the way to the bomb site without exploding on the way. But I guess Terry Nichols confirms that they built the bomb at Geary State Lake. So I don't know. But there's a million little pieces of evidence and maybe some of them are false trails. You know, somebody, I don't think I ever got a link to this, uh, but there was a guy that interviewed me for three hours 
recently about the Oklahoma bombing, and we could have kept going, but then I said, man, we better just stop. Nobody's going to listen to this, you know. I don't know. I don't know if anybody can find that out there. I never got the link, but, um, you know, no, no. I guess I'm less confident in my conclusions now just because it's been so long. I'd kind of like to start all over again and reread everything and decide, you know, what I think holds up compared to what I believed 20 years ago. Uh, but I I do think that there's very strong reason to believe that Nazis helped McVeigh do it and that the cops knew it and that the cops let them get away with it because they were all flip states witnesses and undercover informants who had compromised the cops in it happening on their watch and that they had an active investigation going, that they had prior knowledge of the bombing and could have stopped it, but they failed because they suck. I, and I believe that the Nazis fooled them by having two rider trucks. Uh, when they knew one was being tracked by the FBI, they just used it as the decoy and got another truck and put the bomb in it. The ATF was ready to raid uh, the property in eastern Oklahoma where McVeigh's accomplices apparently were staying, these ARA, Aryan Republican Army bank robbers. And the FBI stopped them from raiding the place and arresting these guys and said, we'll take care of it. And then they didn't take care of it. And then they covered it up. And in the book Oklahoma City by Gumbel and Charles, the FBI agent, no, yeah, no, 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 the U.S. attorney. Well, let's see, was it the U.S. attorney or one of the federal prosecutors under him? Anyway, it was at least one of the federal prosecutors who prosecuted the case. He says in a kind of roundabout, double negative kind of way that his entire office was unanimous. They agreed that guilty men were being allowed to go free, that they were stopping their investigation in the middle because they didn't want to jeopardize the death penalty case against McVeigh. And if they created a bunch of Brady material saying other people were involved, then McVeigh's lawyer would say, well, they're the ones who made him do it. Or they're the ones who did it, not him. And then they could jeopardize their death penalty conviction. So they decided they would let the others go free so that they could get their poster boy. And anyway, you know, it's a big mess, but it's it's worth looking at. Um, I have to say, I was a lot more of a conspiracy theorist kind of a kiddo in high school when this happened 1995 I was a senior and in the years after that the first few years after that so I was a lot more willing to jump to conclusions and to use inductive logic to come up with my mosaic picture of what must be going on here kind of thing and uh, so I don't know I could be wrong in part or maybe even in full but yeah I don't really think so I think we know the names of these guys who were involved and the roles that they played in it enough. And we have confessions from FBI agents and prosecutors, as I just mentioned, about what more investigation should have been done and like that. And so, yeah, man, that's a hell of a thing. And you know what? Here's almost all you need to know. Congress never held a single hearing ever on the Oklahoma bombing. John Doe 2? Meh. Never mind who John Doe 2 might be. People who were seen with McVeigh that morning? Let's not get into that. People out directing traffic for him and riding shotgun in his truck with a baseball cap on. Of course, there's the whole saga of Jesse Trinidou who was murdered in his federal transfer prison cell almost 99% certainty because of a case of mistaken identity that they thought he was Richard Guthrie, one of the Oklahoma bombers. And anyway, it's a hell of a mess. If you want to search my site for Oklahoma City, there's a bunch of stuff to listen to there. I would recommend especially listening to Jesse Trinidou, Kenneth's brother, who's, you know, especially since the death of J.D. Cash, has really done the yeoman's work on this stuff. Um... Yeah, so I don't know. I could go on all day about that, but I think if you look into it, and be sharp. You don't have to resort to reading kind of kooky sources. And it's true that, give them credit, kooks are the kind of people who notice that this story doesn't make sense to me. 
while everyone else is, you know, for other reasons, is more invested in seeming like it, you know, like they're going along with, yeah, it does. The Emperor's wearing clothes. We all see it. Everybody knows McVeigh did it, and that's the end of that. And if if you think something different than that, then, pfft. I mean, just on the face of it, how could you possibly be right when everybody knows already? That's it. You label yourself as some sort of outsider to even consider that kind of thing. But, you know, screw that, right? I mean, what's social psychology matter or any of this? Unless it's like, you know, your brother's wife died in the thing, and if you bring up a word of it, it's going to tear his life apart again or something. Okay, in that case, you should probably just keep your mouth shut. But for the rest of you, you know. All right, um, and someone wrote me about South Sudan. Boy, this is going to be a long episode today, kids. Somebody wrote me about South Sudan, and I wish I was a real expert on this. I'm really not, but um, I can tell you that there is a, a large ethnic divide in the country where the blacks live in the south, the Ninka and the, the Dinka and the Nur. Sorry, I got their first consonant wrong there. Uh, are the names of the major tribes in the south. And the CIA broke them off. The USA and the so-called international community broke them off from the rest of Sudan. And the dictator of Sudan, the president so-called of Sudan, went along with it fine. They'd been fighting for years. I think a million people or more had died. In fact, somewhere in my brain it's saying five million. But I'm thinking, man, is that really right? It could have been. I don't know. But anyway, it's a horrible civil war or war of secession, more or less, going on forever. And then America intervened and finished breaking off the South. And then ever since then, the two major tribes in the South have gone to civil war. And it's just complete desolation. And I don't really know for sure whose side the CIA is on. Probably both. But, you know, there's been a couple of pieces by Nick Terse reporting from South Sudan about, you know... Hell on earth. Like living in Cambodia during Pol Pot. Kind of crap. People just butchered to death with machetes. Entire villages of civilians just hacked to pieces. Uh, madness. The worst of humanity at work, you know. And uh, I don't know what's going to stop it or what. I really need to learn a lot more about it. You know what? I keep telling myself as soon as this Afghanistan book is done... I'm going to really get back to doubling down about Africa issues and especially on Syria. I'm way behind on Syria and other Middle East stuff right now. Um, and China and all them damn islands and stuff. I know. I owe you guys perfect and total knowledge about everything all the time. I'm trying, but I, yeah, I'm behind. Um, this Afghanistan book's almost done. Then we'll see how things change after that. Maybe a little bit. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, there's no peace breaking out in South Sudan. The thing's still going on. And, you know, who knows uh, the counterfactual, how things would have been if America did not intervene there. But uh, seems a safe bet it'd be better. Because how could it be worse? See if I can get Nick back on the show for you there. Um, all right, now somebody wrote to me, and yeah, we're skipping around here, but these are the order of my notes. <laughs> Uh, somebody asked me, how in the hell did the neocons think they were going to get a Hashemite king to rule Iraq? All right, well, so first of all, that comes from David Wormser's, um, you know, strategy paper that Richard Pearl and Douglas Fyth and others signed on to in 1996 for the incoming then, for his first uh, time, for his first term, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and it was called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. You can find it on my website. Fair use, man. A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm, and its companion piece is called Coping with Crumbling States. Something, something. Both by David Wormser is the pri principal author of both of them. And... So what it says, basically, is that they need a more right-wing economic policy... So they can be uh, less dependent on foreign aid and that kind of thing. They need to rebuild their defenses, militarily speaking, as though they were 
down in the dirt then. Um, and well, these are the neocons and that they need to focus on limiting the power of Hezbollah by weakening the power of Syria and Iran by, get this, weakening, in fact, removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. Well, how in the hell is that supposed to weaken Assad or weaken Iran in order to weaken Hezbollah? Well, I'm skipping ahead. But what's going on there is that David Wormser is stupid. And that he really, better than that, he's a sucker. And what he's saying there is a regurgitation of the promises of one Ahmed Chalabi, the convicted Jordanian, uh, Iraqi banker who was convicted in Jordan of embezzlement and uh, subject of a burn notice by the CIA for being such a damn liar, whose group, the Iraqi National Congress, was based in Tehran, Iran. But oh well. Gee, he makes such sweet, sweet promises. Chalabi says, we could install a Hashemite king. We'll just take a, a cousin of the king of Jordan. And we'll, we'll get rid of Saddam, and we'll put uh, this Hashemite king in there. And then get this, what's great is that the Shiite supermajority of Iraq, the 60% majority of the Iraqi people who are now being held down by their Sunni minority dictatorship of Saddam and the Ba'athists, why, they love doing nothing better than kiss ass all day and obey orders. So once we get a Hashemite king in there, and he tells them, now you Shia, you bow down and kiss my ass and do what you're told and you love it. They're going to love it. And it's going to be great. And they will be capital C compliant. And then we'll use that pressure to show the Iranians that this is how the better half live. Don't, don't, don't you want to overthrow your government and install a, an American friendly democracy? So that you can be just like the Shiites of Iraq? And that's what they thought in a nutshell and maybe somewhat a little bit more cynically than that. But yeah, no, I mean, I think that they bought it. And then, you know, as they write in there, yeah, and then I think he even says, and Chalabi promises us that the new government will be able, it'll be allies with Israel. Like Iran used to be in the old days. And, uh, yeah, it'll be fine. And they'll build an oil and a water pipeline to Haifa from Mosul. And it'll be great. So let's do it. And then, of course, by the time of the war, well, come on, we can't put a king in there. We're calling this democracy promotion. Paul Wolfowitz and all this crap about democracy, right? So we'll just install Chalabi. That was the neocon plan. That was, I guess, Cheney's plan. Uh, certainly it was Rumsfeld's plan and all the neocons' plan. And then once they got there, you know, they wouldn't listen to Powell when Powell was going, I don't know if we should do this, which he was on board. I see people on Twitter today acquitting the man. Oh, it's not his fault. It's everybody's fault but his. Psh, huh? He's the one who lied us into war more than anyone else. Are you kidding me? But they wouldn't listen to him when he was saying, geez, you know, I don't know if this is going to work out so, you know, perfect, like in the script that these guys have written here, you know. They wouldn't listen to him then. But then once the war started, all of a sudden his word is gold. And he says, no, we shouldn't put in Chalabi. Not like I'm saying I support the installation of Chalabi, but I'm just trying to be, you know, descriptive here. He says, we shouldn't put in Chalabi. What we should do is we should create a coalition provisional authority and install Paul Bremer. To be the viceroy. And we should, uh, hey, we, if you break it, you own it. And now we have to stay. And now the CIA and the State Department need to implement their entire plan for a 300,000 man occupation and rebuilding, nation building, counterinsurgency effort in the whole nine yards. When at least you kind of got to admit that the neocons aren't really lying. When they say 
that this isn't the war that they wanted. What they wanted was to go in there, murder a bunch of people, and then leave. Not stay and try to control everything. Everything just went to hell. But Bush was told that, man, you can't rely on this guy Chalabi, which was really true, probably. Although, and people don't really know this because you kind of got to dig into the weeds to find these things out. It turns out Chalabi's family had paid for the upkeep of an extremely important Shiite shrine in Najaf. Um, and, and so he actually did have quite a bit of respect. And, and political pull, I mean, not among the masses, but among powerful Shiite leaders. He might have had some influence. Certainly, anything would have been better than staying. Leaving it to him and then watch him get overthrown in a week, who cares? Whatever happens after that, at least it wouldn't have been America's fault. And it couldn't possibly have been as bad as what did happen with America staying. By the way, ask yourselves, how many of you said, well, we can't leave now because things will get worse if we do? And how many of you really reasoned that out and thought that? And how many of you were just repeating a slogan you heard on TV? Well, we can't leave now. Things will get worse. We can't leave now. Things will get worse. And yet, what was going on? You had put the entire American Army and Marine Corps at the service of Muqtada al-Sadr. And, you know, Abdulaziz al-Hakim and the Ayatollahs Sistani and Khamenei. To murder half a million people and ethnically cleanse them, well, sectarianly cleanse them from the capital city. And, you know, I always give this short shrift, but this is true too. A lot of Shiites got cleansed from places like Ramadi and Fallujah and Mosul and predominantly Sunni areas in response as well. But that was in response. This was the actual Americans doing the dirty work of these militias for them. And get this. The Americans thought that the Shiite militias were working for them. Yeah, this is the El Salvador option where we hire these militias to do our dirty work. Uh-huh. Is that what you think is going on here? Well, I heard on TV we can't leave now because things get worse if we do. Now we're, you know, probably two million dead people later or something like that. When you do the excess death rates. Over all these years of war. I mean, it's still Iraq War II days now. Iraq War II never really ended. Well, it's still all one big Iraq War all along. I, I guess you could say it's Iraq War III. There was a temporary lull there in 2012 or so before it all started right back up again. Disaster. Um, yeah, man. So, had a couple more up here. More questions, more questions. Is there any strategic use to U.S. war games we play all over the world? Well, not from my point of view, there's not. But from the American Empire's point of view, yeah, it's a demonstration. It's like pulling our Star Destroyer into orbit around somebody's planet and saying, don't forget what we could do to you if it came to that. And then, of course, it's reassuring our allies, mostly meaning you don't have to build up a massive army that you might get your own ideas about what to do with because you can rely on us. We'll control your military, but we'll be focused on defending you. Take South Korea, for example. They have, you know, in the event of an emergency, white American officers take over their entire military. Is the chain of command there. But that keeps us uh, in a position to keep them from having an independent foreign policy and a military that's oriented toward anything but what we want it oriented to be. So, and then two birds with one stone, we get to threaten the North Koreans. They step out of line. More or less replay that same thing over and over again around the world. What are Turkey's ambitions in Iraq and Syria? I think Turkey still has a few uh, troops in northern Iraq and a few in Syria, is there any threat that Turkey could try to fight a war against Assad or take Mosul? Uh, probably more threat of the latter than the former. I don't know. I mean, I think that he, this is just my speculation, but I think Erdogan wanted to recreate the old Turkish Ottoman Empire. 
the old caliphate under Turkish rule, not under Arab rule. And he decided, well, let these, you know, Al-Qaeda fighters do the dying for me to create that space. But then, of course, the problem is the Islamic State that the U.S., Turkey, Saudi, and Qatar uh, helped to grow up in Syria to fight Assad and Hezbollah ended up blowing back into Iraq so badly that they didn't, it's not that they really threatened Baghdad, but they threatened Erbil in Kurdistan. You got a lot of American interests there. It's not just the embassy. It's a lot of corporate interests there that, you know, oil companies especially that have interests in staying. So at that point, America called its own bluff. Basically, it went to war against their own project to roll it back up again. Um, someone was pointing out that when Erdogan invaded Iraq with those troops, that it was on, was it the 100th anniversary or something of some historical previous invasion of Mosul territory by the Turks back then? Something like that. Um, so, yeah, I always thought that was what he was up to. I guess he thought, I don't know how these people talk themselves into believing this stuff, but he thought that getting rid of Assad would be easy. Which was pretty stupid, because, you know, I had people on this show from the very beginning saying, no, no, that's really not true, man. Especially when his enemies are a bunch of head-chopping suicide bomber lunatics. You're going to find every other faction in the country rallying around the leader. What do you expect him to do? So, now they've, you know, gotten themselves in a real mess there. And, you know, I can't keep track of, I think, probably the most important variable here, which is Russia's relationship with Turkey and getting them to turn around on uh, some of their plans. And it, it looked like Putin had Erdogan in line there for a little while, but then not again, right? Because uh, they had to basically pull this fait accompli where they put... Uh, Syrian Arab army troops between and with Russian support, in fact, American support. There are American troops patrolling Manbij right now as well with the Russians and with the Syrian army, creating this buffer zone between the Turks and their enemies in the YPG, who right now work for America and Russia in their war against the Islamic State. So, I don't know, man. It's a mess. It's far from over. Um, by the way, uh, you might remember right after the election, the Washington Post had it that Obama had unleashed the Joint Special Operations Command against the al-Nusra Front, which, you know, for all my blather about supporting al-Qaeda in Syria, there is a degree of separation. America has been supporting these FSA groups, which share all their weapons and money and fighters with Arar al-Sham and al-Nusra. But it's not direct to al-Nusra. There is one or two degrees of separation, just enough to be deniable, but worth mentioning, if not actually accepting as deniability. It's, you know, kind of worth pointing that out. Um, But so Obama apparently unleashed the special forces on him, but then what was the big dog that didn't bark in those Washington Post pieces? I think there were two main ones. What about the CIA? And I had missed this. Um, but Gareth sent it to me and it was a Reuters piece from about a month ago where they said that after al-Nusra had, uh, beaten the crap out of the free Syrian army guys that stole a bunch of their equipment and weapons and money and whatever else again, that the CIA was calling a temporary halt to support for the FSA. But then the same Reuters article goes on to make it pretty clear that the CIA support had been ongoing still up until then. And as they put it, it's going to kick back in again here real soon. And as they put it, don't be mistaken, this policy change has nothing to do with the incoming Trump administration making a change. This is simply a tactical short-term reaction to them getting a bunch of their stuff stolen. We need force protection for our tow missiles before we hand them all over to Al-Qaeda accidentally. We only want to hand them over to Al-Qaeda light. But then, so what's in there is that the CIA program has, in fact, been ongoing this whole time. 
to continue to support the so-called FSA mythically moderate fighters in Idlib province. And that Trump has not ordered a stop to that. Talk about Horton's Law, man. I mean, I really thought, and I'm Horton. I really thought that he was going to call off the CIA support for the jihadis. Because, come on. (laughs) I mean, right? (laughs) Christ's sake, man. Anyway, all right. Uh, How do the neocons think the Hashemite king? I got that one. If the goal was to spread democracy, didn't they realize Baghdad was majority Shiite and this would be a win for Iran and the Dawah? Yeah, so, I mean, as I explained, no, they didn't realize that. In fact, you know what? I should elaborate about that a little bit more. Um, now that I'm on that, uh, what happened really was once they took over the place and they put Paul Bremer in there, they tried to create this caucus system, which basically meant the U.S. was going to handpick leaders that it liked from different parts of Iraq and try to create some kind of confessional system like they have in Lebanon, you know, something along the lines of proportional representation and this and that. The whole civil war and all that was still a couple years away, and I don't think they really saw it coming. But what happened was, and you can read about this, uh, it was written up quite widely, and it's a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, what happened was the Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, who was the highest-ranking Shiite religious cleric on earth, um, at least tied with Khamenei, but uh, yeah, probably has wider respect. He's not quite the Pope, because it doesn't work that way. It's not that solid of a chain of command. There are other Ayatollahs in Shiism, but he is, I guess, typically described as the most highly respected of the Shiite Ayatollahs on the planet. And there's only a few. I don't know exactly how it works. But anyways, so here's what happened. January 2004, Sistani puts out a message that says, if you believe in God, I need you to go outside and demand one man, one vote. Yeah, in other words, non-negotiable for all Shiites in Iraq and your sisters, and your kids, and everybody. Go outside and let George Bush know. We want one man, one vote, or you are going to have to start this war all over again against the supermajority population of the country that just stood back and watched as you invaded and went after the Sunni dictatorship. So what are you going to do, Bush? You and Paul Wolfowitz and all your democracy talk And that was it. They were done. Bush's goose was cooked, and he was nothing but the Ayatollah Sistani's slave, basically, from that day forward. He should have just left. He could have just left right then and said, "Uh uh-oh, you know what? If you guys want to have a civil war, I'll be damned if I'm going to fight it for you, right? And instead, he's like, oh, yeah, no, exactly. See, that's what we meant. Democracy. Yeah, democracy. Yeah, we'll let the Supreme Islamic Council and the Dawah Party write the new constitution. And then, yes, it's true, the Sunnis boycotted the election of 2005, and that was a huge mistake. I mean, they were going to lose anyway. But boycotting it? Man, you got the extremely well-armed superpower occupation taking the side of the majority. They're holding this election, and they are going to hang to, you know, go with the results of the election. You boycotting it is not going to delegitimize it. Dumb, dumb. It ain't legitimate in the first place. But all you're doing is counting yourself out. Completely. Almost. And so that was the way it happened. So in 2005, I even remember Jon Stewart going, Wow, look. All these ladies with their purple fingers. A woman. In a black head thingamajig. With a purple finger. Uh... Saying, you know, look at me, I voted in my first democratic election. Wow, maybe George Bush was right after all. Derp, derp, de derp. Yeah, but that's your fault for believing in democracy instead of in liberty. Because democracy just means majority rule, really. You want to, you can, if you want, hang a bunch of other stuff on it too and pretend, well, regular elections and regular respect by the losing side for them and for their results and, uh, you know, 
a basic bill of rights and protections for uh, religious and ethnic minorities and, and process for the accused and all these things that kind of we lump in. But at the end of the day, it just means majority rule. And so that's right. We got the Dawa party because what it came down to was the election of the United Iraqi Alliance. And that was the Dawa party, the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq and Muqtada al-Sadr, the alliance of those three. Well, but Sadr had his own army and the, uh, the Hakim faction, that is the Supreme Islamic Council, they had their own army, the Bada Brigade. And so the Dawa party was the compromise. <laughs> they didn't have their own army. They were much more... Um, well, in fact, you know, Sadr's father was one of the founders of the Dawa party, but it, he didn't own it. It was under the control of others. And, you know, he had his own power faction in the Mahdi army and his own group. But so then the entire project from the election in 2005 to this day, for the last 12 years then, has been outright. I mean, it really was since the moment of the invasion. No question about it. In fact, Jonathan Landay told me he was standing right there in Iraqi Kurdistan and he watched Abdulaziz al-Hakim, the leader of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, walk across the border from Iran into Iraq for the first time in 30 years. In 2003, just as the Americans were invading, Hakim says, I'm here. <laughs> uh, so really from that day, from the, from the moment of the invasion, Bush was uh, serving his Iranian quote-unquote enemies. Not that the Iranians are really the enemy of America, only of the American empire in their part of the world. Um, but then, you know, certainly from the time that they wrote up the Constitution and held the election... The entire El Salvador option and all of this stuff. And to this day right now, the U.S. Air Force is flying as the Air Force of the Iraqi Shiite factions that they hate. Dawa and Skiri and uh, Muqtada al-Sadr and then their various Shiite militias and their uh, Shiite Iraqi army. And that's who we've helped to take to Crete, Ramadi, Fallujah, and now Mosul. And I guess we're going to see. I mean, it's not like all the Iraqi Sunnis have just evaporated. Somebody's going to have to deal with them. But the lines of Iraqi Shiistan seem to have been spread even further to the West now. And you would think that these Sunnis would start to realize that they got to quit palling around with Zarqawi and his ilk. <laughs> you know, people like him. Look at the trouble bin Laden keeps getting you into. You keep losing ground. But anyway, and then there's the famous quote. I have it here, don't I? I tried to quote this to Jared. By the way, Jared interviewed me all about the Iraq War. If you guys want to hear that, it's going to be at the blog. I may already be at the blog on um, at the Libertarian Institute site. He interviewed me for about a little more than an hour last night about it. What the hell is that quote? This is a great uh, Kagan quote. This is a Kagan quote that could be from any time of the Iraq War, but this is from right after Mosul fell and the Islamic State was created. They wrote a report saying we need 25,000 troops in Iraq immediately, but they wrote, it is impossible to articulate a clear path to the desired end state. We have no idea what to do. We just think, you know, maybe it'd be fun to try anyway. Ah, here we go. Prince Saud al-Faisal, not Turkey al-Faisal, Saud al-Faisal, Saudi Arabian foreign minister, told John Kerry, quote, Dash, that is the Islamic State, Dash is our response to your support for the Dawah. Which, of course, as though they were telling Kerry something that he didn't already know since he was in on it, too. See, that's the importance. I always mention that's the importance of the Seymour Hersh article, The Redirection. Because The Redirection, it was written in 07 about a policy that was kicked in in, 90, in 06 um, about how, oops, we screwed up. And we just fought. We're in the middle of fighting the Iraq War for Iran. So we can't just turn around and fight the war all over again like uh, Sistani dared us to. But we can focus on undermining Hezbollah in Lebanon and... Assad's regime in Syria. And so at that point, they tilted back towards Saudi 
and their support for the Mujahideen. And they backed uh, Fatah al-Islam in Lebanon, various Muslim Brotherhood groups, which apparently now have grown into Arar al-Sham in Syria, and Jandala in Iran. And this is at a time when America was still fighting the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq in 06. I mean, this is before even the worst of the civil war and the surge. Where the Saudis were supporting that Sunni-based insurgency there, too. And Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Just like Jabhat Fatah al-Sham and the Muslim Brotherhood and Jandala in Lebanon, Syria, and Iran. Get it? It's treason. But, you know, to be perfectly clear, it's not treason because Obama is a Kenyan Muslim. He wasn't president until 09, dude. (laughs) And guess what? George Bush isn't a Kenyan Muslim either. It's treason because both of these men are wannabe Ronald Reagan. Both of these men are at least half-white, centrist, conservative American imperialists. Despite what you heard. And so their policy is, yeah, if we can use the Mujahideen to accomplish dirty work against other enemies we have, who cares about the towers? Who cares about the 4,500 that they had gotten killed in Iraq in that case? Useful. What do you not understand about useful, young man? Now get out there and support your enemies that you thought you were here to fight. Sometimes I worry a little bit about some of these quotes getting taken out of context, but you guys, if that ever happens, you guys help me remember which episode was which. All right. Let's see if I can waste a little bit more of your time here. One more. Oh, see, I almost forgot. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and the wipe the whole uh, Israel off the map stuff because Stapleton said so. Well, here's the thing. People in Iran, maybe political leaders in Iran, have used the wipe Israel off the map thing a few times. But not Ahmadinejad. President Ahmadinejad only said that once, and he didn't say it. And that's the issue at controversy. So if Stapleton or anybody else wants to bring up a bunch of other stuff, like what Rush Limbaugh said about Iran, I guess we could do that. We could play that game all day. But as far as what anyone with power said they were going to do, no, they did not threaten war against Israel. It's just a lie. It's a damn lie. And and I like Jason Stapleton, but that's just stupid. I mean, all I got to do is goddamn Google it with your Google. What he said, quoting a poem from a thousand years ago that had been quoted by the Ayatollah Khomeini, Back in the 1980s about the Soviet Union. He said that Israel will one day vanish, not from the map, but from the page of time. And none of that had anything to do with a threat of aggressive war at all. Unless you're telling me that the Ayatollah Khomeini was threatening aggressive war against Moscow in 1984, whatever it was, when he said, quoting a thousand-year-old poem, paraphrasing it, the Soviet Union will one day vanish from the page of time. As in, your system is unsustainable. As in, we will bury you. Not we will kill you, We will be there at your funeral. Get it? Why does everybody always get that wrong? We will bury you means we will outlast you. That was all Khrushchev said to us at that point, which of course is stupid. You need prices, you idiot. Well, we do a real good job of, you know, looking in the Sears catalog and trying to figure out what prices are in your part of the world, and then we mimic that. I'm pretty sure that'll work. Anyways, no, you will not bury us. We will bury you. We will outlast you. Your regime will one day vanish from the page of time is not a call for aggressive war. It's not a threat of aggressive war. And yeah, talk about a bad translation. There's no wipe and there's no map. And in fact, they didn't even say Israel. 
uh, Ahmadinejad didn't even say Israel. He said the Zionist regime, which is notably not the country, but a very specific reference to their government. In other words, he was calling for one man, one vote and the one state solution and equal rights for all. And Palestinians get to vote for their security force instead of being helots. Instead of being denied all of their human rights, which I know Jason Stapleton does not support. The people of Palestine forever being the slaves of the Israelis. Well, they're not slaves because the Israelis don't want them. But they have no rights at all. They live under not martial law, but war occupation law for 50 years straight in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, which is nothing but a concentration camp, the latter. As they say at the the liberal Israeli 972 mag, the West Bank is kind of a minimum security prison. The Gaza Strip is a maximum security prison. You know, for millions of helpless, innocent civilians. And why do they even live there? They live there because they're refugees when the land that you pretend is Israel now was stolen from them. So, yeah, if there was one man, one vote of all the people who live under the control of the Israeli government, that is, the Arabs of the Golan Heights and the West Bank, the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem were allowed to vote for the Knesset, then guess what? The Zionist regime would cease to exist. Because their mantra is Jewish and democratic and what's a Palestinian? There's no such thing. So Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is right to wish to see the end of such cruelty. And Jason Stapleton just doesn't have a leg to stand on. Um, unless I'm absolutely missing other quotes of Ahmadinejad saying, yes, I am, to clarify, I'm threatening aggressive war here. That never happened. And to wipe something off the map is not an idiom in Farsi. And by the way, this has to be said. Wipe them off the map with what? Iran has one battleship. The rest of their navy is made of fiberglass speedboats. They can't even get out of the Persian Gulf, much less make it up the Red Sea. And, you know, through all the passes to Israel. What are they going to do? They never were making nuclear weapons. And Jason Stapleton knows that because I explained it to him. They never had a nuclear weapons program in the first place. So how in the hell are they going to wipe Israel off the map with black magic? With superstitious fear of conservatives manifested somehow through the spirit realm? Oh, whatever conservatives are afraid of becomes true in the world, unfortunately. Which is why we're all burning to death right now. Except that's not how it works. Iran couldn't even wipe itself off a map. This whole thing is stupid. They couldn't even cleanse Baghdad without tricking American conservatives into doing it for them. Okay? Thank you for thinking hard. Oh, and you know what? I should add one thing to this. Um, well, two things. First of all, um, Juan Cole, who I can't stand ever since he supported the Libya war, still, he debunked this real good, and he speaks the language and knows what he's talking about. And then there's also a thing at antiwar.com. I forget the guy's name, but there's a thing at antiwar.com called the Rumor of the Century that debunks this as well. But I will give the war party and my friend Jason Stapleton a little bit of credit, which is that it was the Iranian government state media that got the quote wrong. And maybe it was right-wingers who were trying to sabotage the president and put even worse words in his mouth. But they were the ones who originally ran the false quote. And then the BBC and others picked it up from there, and it never died since. It could be that once the controversy came up, then they started, I don't know, Ahmadinejad, but maybe others used that phrase after that as a, a sticking point of you can't tell me what not to say and this, that, the other thing. But the fact is that death to America and death to Israel and all that is not the policy of the government of Iran. It's just a slogan, you know, like, and justice for all here. Get it? So there you go. All right, that's the questions and answers. Thanks, you guys. Um, send me tweets or send me emails, and I will try to uh, get to them for you. Thanks. 
Oh, and seriously, hey, uh, do me a favor. Patronize my sponsors. Go buy a copy of The War State. Uh, go buy some medals through Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Get some stickers from Rick McGinnis over there at uh, Liberty Stickers and TheBumperSticker.com. And uh, buy T-shirts from Rye Guys. You can get Scott Horton and Libertarian Institute stickers there and uh, all of that. So, yeah, it's good when my sponsors feel like they're making money because they sponsor my show. Do you get how that goes? And then the more they pay me, the better the chance that I can continue to do shows for you guys that you love so, so much. Okay, thank you.